You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you? and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, we heard from uh, Michael McKee, who was speaking with the New York Fed president today. Rates are going higher. I think the concern, or one of the several concerns in the marketplace is What's the risk of this Fed Reserve uh, going too far, too fast, maybe pushing this economy uh, into a recession? Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence, joins us. Danielle, how is your Federal Reserve performing right here? How, and, and how do you expect them to perform for the remainder of the year? Well, you know, I, I think that, that we can expect Federal Reserve officials to attempt to stay the course over the next a uh, few months. People forget that this is a midterm election year. And if there's one unwritten rule at the Fed, it's that you don't appear overtly political during an election year. So I think the reason that so many Fed officials, including the two most dovish, the vice chair of the FOMC, John Williams, who was just on Bloomberg, and Lael Brainerd, I think the reason that they've been corralled by Jay Powell is that they want to be consistent in their broadcasting, that they're going to to be methodical and that they're going to raise rates and that they're, they've got a goal of getting to neutral and that they're going to try and stay the course into the election, even though those last few words they're not saying. But I think that that's yeah. really the message right now. How do you set yourself a goal of getting to neutral when you have no idea where neutral is? I just... You know, nobody can... I ask people all the time, what's neutral? What's your R-star? And nobody has an exact answer. It's always kind of a wishy-washy, spongy guess. Well, and it's going to be, right? Because Jay Powell was determined in 2018 that he was going to get to 3%. It was as if he had this neutral goal in mind. Now, you know, you listen to Christopher Waller yesterday, a governor who used to be the, the, the director of research at the St. Louis Fed under Bullard. He said 2.4%. 
And that is the number that it seems like things started to break last time in the markets. So I think that I, they, can, they, can, they can have as many models as they want. I think that they're mm. simply looking back in time and saying, well, look, credit, credit broke when we were approaching 2.5%. So let's, let's just shoot a little bit under that and call it 24 by the way, can, can I, I have sure. uh, Danielle has a big fan who listens to the show every day. We got a lot of fans. No, I mean, have you seen Danielle? On this guy media? listens She's to big. our show every day. Okay, he and I talk, but he also has heard Danielle speak a few times. He's a big uh, fan. He wants. He's writing writing in right now. He wants okay. to know. Do you agree with the change in WERP? That's the you know the Bloomberg function about inflation peaking and the market pricing in fewer hikes. You know, I think I don't think that the market has priced anything definitively in. Look at where the ten-year yield is right now, mm-hmm. and this is just off of a, a stronger-than-expected University of Michigan expectations number that, that just crossed the wires a few minutes ago. Right now, markets are extremely volatile, and I and and pricing of, of future inflation is is really. It's it's undetermined, right? Well, but everybody has been saying this is the peak, you know, or this is likely the peak. I don't, I don't know if I personally buy that. Also, the biggest asset managers in the world are betting that the terminal rate's going to be about three percent, which I know because BlackRock came out today and said, nope, it's going to be closer to two. What do you think? You know, I I think uh, I think that what we're seeing and what few too too few are talking about is we're seeing that, that freight, that trucking in America hit a wall on, in, in, in early March. That is a sign to you, and I think that this is what everybody's kind of, kind, of, kind of globbing onto. That's a sign that demand in the United States has really come under pressure. And that's why we're not seeing all these crazy supply chain disruption, inflationary Im- impulses, Despite what's going on in Ukraine and despite what's going on in, in China, I think the demand in the United States is really what's hit a wall and that that is what is going to anchor core inflation moving forward. But we don't know what food prices are going to do. And we're hoping that gas prices are coming down. And by the way, University of Michigan is a pure play, the upside surprise, a pure play on the fact that we gave back all of the gains at the gas pump. And came and, and gas pump uh, gas prices came down, and that's all you're looking at because it's still at recessionary readings. And I think that that is something that shouldn't be shouldn't be lost. And we should know that there is no uh, Ohio State sentiment that's index, dude, because we are focused on the game of football. I admit that the University of Michigan is a great school. It's, okay, it's an incredible. Uh, academy. It's an institution for higher learning. And I love Ann Arbor. It's a great place to go, except for when they're playing Ohio State, because then they lose and it's so depressing. I know. I know. Just wanted to get get that in there. All right. So, Danielle, just real quickly here. uh, Is my Federal Reserve going to deliver a soft landing for me or are we going to risk recession maybe next year? Oh, heck no. And I don't think recession's a next year proposition. Whoa. Look, look, what have we had? A 10-year expansion, a 12-year expansion. Right now we're talking about a two-and-a-half-year expansion, give or take. Why is, the, why, why is the general operating assumption that we're going to go into recession as slowly as we have with really protracted, elongated expansion when this expansion in the entire cycle has been compressed into a time machine? 
I think that I think that I think it's specious well, to say you're going to have this 18 month runway. I think pe- people are worried that you know this monetary. Uh, what do you call it? Modern monetary theory has brought in incredible inflation. And now, look, yeah. Ira Jersey says not a question of, um, you know, if we're going to have a recession, but what kind it's going to be. I couldn't agree more. We've only t- tacked on $2 trillion more in corporate debt right. since February the 19th, 2020. All right. So more things can break. Yep, absolutely. Danielle Martino Booth, CEO and chief strategist at Quill Intelligence, uh, giving us her thoughts. We have a uh, great pleasure. Ed Price is in the studio with a senior fellow and former British trade official, uh, senior fellow at, at NYU yes, sir. and former British trade official. Yes, sir. Uh, he's a political economist. He represented Her Majesty's government uh, to Wall Street and uh, U- U.S. official sector from 2017 to 2021. And um He's, uh, I guess you specialize in German economic history, but you look at obviously the entire world. Is that fair? Yes, I think like, you know, German history is always in my mind. I think it's a good a good benchmark for a lot of things, particularly if we're going to talk about inflation, of course. Yeah, uh, the Weimar Republic and the hyperinflation is um, the big scare, and that's why Germans hate it so much. But I think we all hate inflation. I mean, Ronald Reagan hated inflation as much sure. as any German. Right. Um, uh, somebody asked me today, who's your least favorite German politician? And I was thinking, um, first of all, I can't I, name I, any. I, I like <laughs> I like a lot of them on both sides of the aisle. There's very there's not as much differentiation there as there is here, at least of the two okay. main parties. Mm-hmm. But I thought, you know what? When I was at the G20 in Hamburg, um, Angela Merkel got like a standing ovation from all the other leaders. She right. was clearly leading the free world, right? right. Um, and and it was amazing. Like she was the hero. And now, in hindsight, we realize she's been appeasing Vladimir Putin for years mm. and making Germany dependent on right. Russian oil and gas. They're basically fu- funding his war in Ukraine. These right. atrocities um, that we're that we're watching. How does how does Angela Merkel go down in history? I mean, it's, that's a profound question, right? And, and to use the word appeasement um, of Germans is sort of meta-ironic. And yeah. you, have to, you, know, you have to sit down and think about that that's one. That's why I chose it. Yeah, that's why you chose it. It was very clever. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, how does she go down in history? Right now, not that well. And I suppose if you want to think about why the Germans were taking in all that gas and why they were appeasing Russia, maybe there was some sort of back of their mind, war guilt, you know, we invaded the Russians twice, we caused a lot of damage, and maybe we have some sort of historical uh, responsibility to bring the Russians back into the European fold. And again, ironically, they are not in the European fold, and they seem to have used this relationship with Germany to to break away from what you might call norms. It's crazy. I was over there for the last six years in Berlin, and I kept running into like Dan Briette, the U.S. energy minister, and every time I... I would say, hey, Dan, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm trying to get these guys to buy our LNG. I'm right. trying to get them to build more terminals so they can accept our gas and not buy all this stuff from Vladimir Putin. And it shut down Nord Stream 2, obviously. He was unsuccessful. I mean, I guess they wish they would have now. But is it even possible for Western Europe to cut off Russian oil and gas? Or would they be kind of shooting themselves in the foot? Well, it's certainly possible for Putin to shoot them in the foot and cut off at least some mm-hmm. of that gas, right? So I think it's definitely, it's now become clear that that's a major security risk. Uh, and so whether it's possible to the upside, whether they can actually pivot back to, to US oil production, one would hope. 
Um, now, of course, I mean, you guys tell me what you think about this, but you're immediately going to drive into the wall of the climate lobby, um, possibly correctly, right? But it's uh, on the one hand, on the other hand situation. Yep. Um, so we need to pump right. more. Do you want to finance war crimes right. or do you want to mine more dirty coal? Do you want to roast to death? Which way? Like yeah. <laughs> atomic weapons or slowly? So, um, Ed, we, we heard from Christine Lagarde, IMF, uh, this morning. Give us your sense of how the world's banks, the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of England, how coordinated are they in terms of trying to bring down inflation? We've got a reopening economy. How are they Don't acting? forget Canada. Don't, don't forget, forget, forget Canada. Canada. I won't forget Canada. Our they're friends they're all them. fighting the same inflation, right? Yeah. Hopefully they're on the phone yeah. with each other. One would hope. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think, I think you no, know, central bankers talk to each other all the time. How coordinated, coordinated they are in actual policy terms remains to be seen, and I think the ECB is behind. But if you're asking me for my sense of it, I think all central banks around the world are realizing two, two things, right? Number one, fiat currency is a massive experiment. And number two, we've been running an experiment within an experiment with um, endless QE. So I, I MMT. Think, <laughs> right, MNC. Please don't get me started on MNT. <laughs> right. But I mean, how much money did we spend? It, not just monetary policy, right? How much money did we spend in fiscal um, since the pandemic started? And you, we at least brought ourselves out of a recession quickly. But the question right. is, are we headed right back down there with massive inflation um, uh, to join it? I think the answer is yes. So a $9 trillion balance sheet is an absurdity. And if you remember, we were talking about inflation being transitory, passing. We kind of moved from passing to persistent. And now I think we need to move from persistent to pernicious. And the Fed really does need to get a handle on this. I understand that there's a war in Ukraine. I understand that there are all sorts of other uh, financial market reasons for like, you know, keeping the, the juice going. But this is going to become a disaster. 8.5% could be 10. And if it's 10, you could imagine 20. But so you think they should get, be quicker with um, Much quicker. QT? Much quicker with QT, much quicker with hikes. So yes. you're not in the camp that the CPI inflation reading we just got is the peak? I don't think it matters if it's the peak. I mean, what if it goes back, goes back down to seven? I mean, who cares? This is a major problem. This okay. is eating into people. And this is something like, I guess one of my questions has always been. And dude, those costs don't go back down, right? I've been know, watching my well, S150 right? go from, in January it was 50 grand. In February, mid-February, they raised it to 53. You know, now at right. the beginning of March, it was so 55. Did you, did you get your order in? No. I'm, I'm, I'm ordering Ed Price. We're talking about the I'm, Ford F-150 for Matt Miller. It's a big issue. I, that just that's a general term. I really am <laughs> trying to decide between a GMC Sierra 1500 right. AT4X and sure. a Chevy Silverado 1500 ZR2. Okay. But in, well, in any case, in the point case. is the prices stay elevated, right? They stay With the exception of gas and food, hopefully those come back down. Prices are upwardly sticky. Let's put yeah. it like that. Yeah, and, that's uh, a good point. I've been looking at the Toyota Supra myself. Like, that thing looks like a beast. So, <laughs> yes. you, do, you know what I mean? Shared development with BMW. Shared is a kind word. Yes. yes. <laughs> are you a yes. car guy too? I'm trying to be. Uh, right now, yes, I'm, okay. I'm, yeah, you into cars? I'm a fan, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm driving a Subaru, so if you want me to leave right now. Nice. No, no, that's a boxer <laughs> motor. I love ah, it. Okay. And uh, very reliable. In yes. fact, Consumer Reports ranks Subaru as one of the greatest brands of all car brands in the world. So well, now I'm feeling good about myself. Good choice. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Excellent. What's our Fed do next there, Ed? I mean, 50 basis points. Do I have multiple 50 basis point moves from my Federal Reserve? Oh, I'd like to see that. Um, uh, no, probably. I mean, they, they're, they're very hesitant, aren't they, about even suggesting they'll do one. I mean, they, they've said they might. Um, but it, 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 in my mind... Because we have like, guests on it says they're going to be four coming up. I'd like basis. to see that too. Um, but I think that if they do that, there's a moment in markets, right, where the markets are like, uh-oh, what is this? Uh, if you do it once, you've kind of broken the seal. And so they're, they're facing two panics, right? They're facing either the 
real economy panicking because we can't buy the things that we want to buy. And on the other hand, they're facing the financial market panic, potentially, in which markets turn around and say... Dude, imagine 450 basis point hikes. That sounds crazy. It does sound crazy. But it brings us only to two and a quarter percent. Right. still nothing. So what does normalization mean? Yeah. Okay. Normalization doesn't mean anything right now. We're still going to be in a very loose environment, even with that kind of even with that kind of hiking. Good time to buy a house. All right, Ed Price, thank you so much. Ed Price, senior fellow, NYU, former British trade official, member of the Economic Club of New York. Do they actually have like a clubhouse? That's a big deal. That's like a a 200-year-old club, actually. I know. Do they have a clubhouse? I mean, where do they, like, did they they, meet somewhere? They probably meet at like the Metropolitan Club or something. And All right. uh, I mean, I took economics. Can I get in there? I don't know what you have to do to join. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ed Price, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Looking at the wall of worry, a new brick has recently been added over the past couple of months, and that is geopolitical risk, as you have a hot war now in Ukraine, and that is another issue for investors to digest. Sadek Waba joins us. He is founder, chairman, and managing partner of I Squared Capital. Sadek, you know, we have this hot war in Ukraine. It feels so 20th century that people, are, I think, are having a hard time kind of really appreciating the impacts. How do you think about that in terms of your investment outlook? Great to be uh, with you, Matt, and I appreciate uh, the invite. Uh, my biggest concern is the impact the war uh, is having on global inflation and U.S. inflation in particular. So the numbers came out uh, two days ago, 8.5% increase uh, in March, uh, compared to uh, 7.9, you had a 1.2% increase in one month. That increase will continue, and I suspect int- inflation will be around 10-plus by the summer. Uh, so that puts enormous pressure on the Federal Reserve to increase uh, interest rates, uh, and that, of course, is not going to help the economy. My sense is we are sleepwalking towards a global economic crisis unless this Ukraine situation gets resolved. Sadek, I want to jump in and say, first of all, that was yep. Paul. Uh, Paul, how th- are you? That, that was Paul. This is Matt. I'm just saying. Matt, okay. <laughs> we, we, we look a lot alike on the radio. <laughs> um, uh, first of all, hello, and thanks so much for joining us. Great talking to you. Um, I want to know what you think about um, – you know, the U.S. economy in this context, are we are we headed towards a recession with 10 percent inflation? That sounds like a horrible situation. I think if the war in Ukraine is not resolved relatively quickly, you will have the trifecta of a pandemic of a global logistics chain supply crisis and a war that has pushed energy prices, commodity prices, food prices way, way up. Uh, and that, yes, will probably lead to a recession. Um, I, I'll give you one simple example. We passed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. The cost of construction has gone up by more than 20%. That means that that infrastructure bill of $1.2 trillion has already lost 20%. So it's lost $240 billion of its purchasing power. Uh, so that's a problem. So are we going to get any more fiscal help, you think? Um, Because we've fallen off this fiscal cliff. It's kind of a cliche now, but it's true. And, you know, on the one hand, a a lot of that fiscal spending is, is um, is getting the blame for inflation. On the other hand, um, can we really 
go cold turkey without any more? Uh, no, you can't. So, so you have to continue to invest, but invest productively in areas where that has uh, a positive effect on American productivity. That has to continue to happen. And that is, in fact, what the Biden administration is doing. They're trying to ensure that the infrastructure bill, which is the biggest bill we've ever had, is allocated properly across productive projects across the U.S. So that is certainly going to be a huge plus. Uh, and that has to continue. I think the other element is to be able to have a synchronized effort globally to try and stop the war in Ukraine, because that is going to be the biggest positive impact it can have on the global economy. In terms of U.S. infrastructure, Sadek, where do you think the priority should be? I'll tell you where mine is. Mine is the Gateway Project, getting some new tunnels connecting New Jersey and, and New York and Amtrak. I've been lobbying that forever. What, where do you think the money should be spent? So the most efficient way today is to spend the money on things that need immediate repair. Why? Uh, Because you don't have to wait another three or four years of planning to be able to do that. Uh, So things that are broken, bridges that are almost falling, uh, are the easiest target where there is the most impact, the biggest bang for your buck. Uh, And that is what is, in fact, the administration currently doing. Uh, The next will be to really focus on energy supply and uh, adopt an all-of-the-above strategy, right? So we realize that we need to ensure our independence, but also the independence of uh, our allies in Europe. And so that means accelerating LNG projects and ensuring that that will allow gas to flow into Western Europe, which I think indirectly should help uh, accelerate the end of the war. As an investor, Sadek, are there infrastructure projects that you think have um, decent returns right now? What's the, what's the, what's the environment look like? Look, the, the environment is generally positive. Of course, everything is expensive, even though there's been a market adjustment, uh, but real assets haven't yet adjusted uh, the way that probably should. Uh, but you have investments in digital infrastructure, which continues to be very important. Uh, you have investments in renewables, Uh, in solar and wind, which is going to be critical. And I think investment in basic infrastructure associated with the transport of gas uh, across the U.S. to ensure that you can unblock the supply of gas uh, for export purposes. That's going to be an important element. So, Sadek, at the beginning of this pandemic, you know, supply chain issues became so apparent to so many people. There's certainly talk about onshoring more of our supply chain Is that something you think this U.S. economy has an appetite for? Is that something that should occur? Look, the strategy is from a just-in-time to a just-in-case. That just-in-case, of course, comes at an expense, right? Uh, The fact is Europe was buying gas from Russia and not from other regions. It's because it's cheaper. So the moment we start onshoring uh, as opposed to offshoring, we will, by definition, increase the cost to the consumers. Uh, And that will also fuel inflation. And so from that perspective, it's a choice that consumers have to make. I think in times of crisis, that's what happens. But I think once that stabilizes, uh, I would not be surprised that we return to a more balanced offshore, onshore type of strategy. All right, Sadek Waba, thank you so much for joining us. Sadek Waba, founder 
chairman and managing partner of I Squared Capital. Matt, do you ever think we're going to build a silicon chip factory here in the U.S.? Yeah, for sure. Um, they're, they're building uh, chip factories here in the U.S. right now. I believe one in the great state of Ohio, at least one. Okay. Um, and... I think Sadek makes a great point. You know, it's going to be more expensive, obviously. Um, you can't treat workers here the way you do in uh, low-cost labor nations. And um, uh, on the other hand, though, maybe we're willing to spend enough so that the workers who do build our chips live a better life. Yep. Interesting to see how this plays out. That was certainly the onshoring of certain manufacturing uh, issues, supply chain issues. Uh, certainly the talk in the beginning of this pandemic. See how this plays out. There's a film called Trading Places. I highly recommend if you haven't seen it, if you're working on Wall Street, watching Trading Places is like reading Liar's Poker. Right. It's something that you have to have done. Yep. So, Jennifer Lee, Senior Economist, Managing Director of BMO Capital Markets. Have you seen Trading Places, Jennifer? I think my favorite line is when he, his legs <laughs> were discovered that they worked, and he was like, it's a miracle, it's a miracle. <laughs> I can walk. <laughs> yes, Eddie Murphy was see, Jennifer's, hilarious. Right, see, Jennifer's seen it. She, she can stay and play with us. All right, Jennifer, talk to us about this economy. <laughs> I, it's bad enough I have to deal with inflation at the gas pump in the supermarket. Now I've got some economists talking about recession next year. How do you think about this Federal Reserve, and is a recession risk real in your mind? They are. Um, I remember when we spoke about this last month, I was saying it's not our base case scenario, and it's still that's still the point, the, the case that is not, again, our base case scenario. But, you know, the longer that, you know, the uh, the war lasts for, for example, you know, um, the Fed communication has been very clear that they are going to go faster and higher um, than everyone was, anyone was expecting, you know, like half a year ago or so. So I think the risk of a hard landing is is rising. But again, it's not our base case scenario. But, you know, probably the next couple of years, you know, we're probably going to see some kind of pullback. So what do you expect in terms of, you know, we were just talking about some people forecasting four 50 basis point hikes. Um, I don't think that's the consensus, but we are looking for, if you take a look at the uh, WIRP function on the Bloomberg terminal, you can see that the market has priced in essentially nine 25 basis point hikes between now and the beginning of February. What do you think? All right. So this is a very humbling job, by the way. And I remember poo-pooing people who were saying, you know, four or five. And I'm like, oh, come on, you know, let's be reasonable. Uh, we, I can't count anymore. We have rate hikes um, going for every single meeting this year and I think two next year. Um, and we're looking for 50 basis points in May and in June and then 25, 25, 25 and whatever after that. Um, Again, the risk is higher, and it's not just the Fed. It's, uh, you know, as everyone knows, it's like almost all center banks around the world. You know, this week we had the Bank of Canada going 50. We had New Zealand going 50. We had a govern, governor-less Bank of Korea going 25, you know. So it's uh, this is like the, the story for, for everyone. And it's almost like, what's that movie about? Um, anyway, it's like 50 is like the new 25. That's sort of how I've been thinking right. about it. What We had Christine Lagarde, president of the ECB, this morning uh, speaking. What was your takeaway there? It seems like it's less clear for the ECB, their path, relative to the Federal Reserve. Right. So Europe has, you know, it's, it's a very different story over there, um, you know, especially with, with the war and energy prices especially. Um, it was interesting because I think the, the press release itself was – pretty cut and dry, you know, saying that uh, if uh, that we are basically seen enough and uh, 
the APP will end in Q3. But during the press conference, President Lagarde, um, who was working from home, sounded a lot more wishy-washy, a lot more vague, and in, in sort of like typical of the UCB, where you know she was emphasizing um, flexibility and optionality, and she didn't. She was like, you know, we say it's going to end in Q3, Q3, but we didn't say when. You know, is it going to be early or later? Um, so I think July is still a possibility, but I've sort of tossed that one out the window now, and I think we're going to go for a September rate hike, just given how uncertain the uh, the ECB was sounding um, today. It's amazing um, to me that we have seen such little movement um, in the euro for a while. I thought it was going to go to parity as it was going up to you know one twelve, one thirteen. Then I thought up is the path, and now it's come back down to, to 108. Where do you see Eurodollar? Um, we're a little bit more on the bearish side of things, um, and I guess I was just sort of anticipating that, you know, the, the ECB will probably get cold feet, um, and they'll probably can keep communicating, and they, I mean, they're already pulling back on that accommodation, but when they're actually going to be more aggressive on the rate hike front, I don't know when that's going to happen, but we've got the euro ending at around 106 by the end of this year, um, you know, uh, hopefully I'm, I'm wrong on this one, but, uh, you know, maybe around lower than where we are now. Are they all on the phone, Jennifer? Are, are, <laughs> are Christine Lagarde and Jerome Powell and, you know, um, the Bank of England and the Bank of Canada, are they all talking? Because they're fighting the same inflation, right, with different rate hikes. Right. I think they were, you know, um, chatting and probably they have a WhatsApp group going on, you know, back in 2020. But um, now I think, you know, things are, are heading in different directions, you know, especially uh, inflation. And then with the economies in, in North America a little bit stronger, you know, we the U.S. was certainly starting on the, starting off on a stronger footing. So they have more um, yep. uh, more comfort, I think, in, in raising rates um, very quickly and, and very aggressively. And as Fed Chair Powell has said, you know, yep. the labor market is strong and the economy can raise rates, but um, and here in Canada as well. But uh, in Europe, like I said, it's a very different story and they're more concerned right. about the impact of the war. All right, Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us again. Jennifer Lee, Senior Economist, Managing Director, BMO Capital Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.